just finished reading an absolutely fascinating book. In fact, it's so good, I believe it should be read in conjunction with Rosika Parker's well-known book, The Subversive Stitch, Embroidery and the Making of the Feminine. If you're really interested in a behind-the-scenes look at the history of needlework and embroidery, that is. Why? Because I've never before thought too deeply about the strictures of gender stereotypes and the marginalisation of men in the world of needlework. Women, yes, but not men. In fact, would you believe very little is actually known or recorded on this topic, which is why this book is such a refreshing and eye-opening read. And for the life of me, I can't remember what prompted me to buy the book, but I'm so pleased I did. I'd not heard of either the book nor the author before, and I think this should be rectified. So, with no further ado, Stitch Safari Journeyers, let me introduce to you Queering the Subversive Stitch, Men and the Culture of Needlework, written by Joseph McBrin, published by Bloomsbury in Great Britain in 2021. I bought the Kindle version. According to the Ulster University website, Joseph McBrin is an Irish art and design historian and lecturer who's currently engaged on book projects dealing with sewing, masculinity and queer theory. I find it hard to believe that so little is in fact known about the history of the culture of men and embroidery. And I must say, each time I come across this topic during my research, it's usually accidentally or associated with something else. So a huge thumbs up to Joseph McBrin for bridging this gap. But it begs the question, why? Why have these historical facts been overlooked or ignored? And why is the association of men who dare to pick up a needle and thread linked irrevocably with their sexuality? Joseph McBrin asks this very important question in the preface to his book. If men who took up needlework have often been seen as queer by queering needlework, it is possible to reveal just how such cultural practices have been implicated in the making of the masculine through exclusion, effacement and elision, as much as the feminine through emphasis, enforcement and inculcation. Now think about that statement, because that's fundamental to this book. This is a fascinating trek into the first ever book published about men who create and make needlework. I was hooked right from the get-go. Join me as I comment on Joseph McBrin's book, Queering the Subversive Stitch, Men and the Culture of Needlework. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. 
My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. During an interview with journalist Anne Caborn, Rosika Parker apparently reflected on this. Why is it that a man impairs his masculinity if he embroiders? Great question, I hear you ask. It's presumptuous that needlework of any kind is seen to be emasculating or has a stigma attached to it. Many men have stitched, uh, stitched throughout history, as we all well know. We also know that numerous soldiers returning from war were prescribed embroidery as part of their recovery and occupational therapy. American historian Joan Jensen acknowledges that men have worked as tailors, factory workers and sailors who had to sew their own clothing. And research documents both men and women being employed in medieval guild workshops or workshops attached to noble households, monasteries and in nunneries, noted Parker. And as Parker analysed the feminine ideal over a thousand years of British history, she did find transitional moments over the past 500 years where embroidery became a social, economic and cultural factor in the separation of the genders, both in public and in private. And that's what I find so very interesting. It simply begs the question of why? Now, a lot has changed since Parker wrote her groundbreaking book, The Subversive Stitch, Embroidery and the Making of the Feminine, in 1984. Embroidery and the needle arts are now seen as acceptable forms of self-expression by most people, closely aligned with social, cultural and historical experiences. Yet, Parker's solid research determines that it was in Victorian times that women actually took over the mantle of being the sole keepers of the needle, taking it into domestic drawing rooms where the levels of professionalism of the needle arts took a corresponding nosedive. McBrin's research is thorough though, as those tra uh, transitional moments are pivotal, becoming the axis to answering that question of why. We know the 16th to 18th centuries saw the rise of secular and domestic sewing. Then came the Industrial Revolution and commercialisation. It was also the era of sweatshop labour, a practice that unfortunately continues today. Yet unrecorded and widely unacknowledged is that men as well as women worked on England's great medieval era embroideries known as Opus Anglicanum. At this time workshops were professional and organised to run commercially, regulated by the newly founded All Male Broderers Company in the City of London, although I do believe there were similar organisations set up in Europe. 
the worth of needlework diminished when the economic and cultural value of embroidery waned in post-medieval societies and, most importantly, when needlework became aligned with ideas associated with domesticity and the feminine. And it was the Victorians who began to obscure and misrepresent embroiderers, creating a divide based on sex. They suggested that embroidery had always been an inherently female activity, which resulted in its being seen as an amateur craft, an idea that was unchallenged throughout the 20th century. McBrin writes that it's these constraints and constructions of needlework as mandatory for women concluded that for men, the opposite must be true. Therefore, defining concepts of masculinity, a newly acquired term coined during Victorian times that swiftly and effectively eradicated male embroiderers from history. Yet many men, including gay men, took up the needle. If embroidery held such meaning for women, what did it mean for them? Comfort, satisfaction, pleasure, practicality, or something entirely different? Subversion and sexual identity? What about the practice of needlework as occupational therapy for injured soldiers during the two world wars? What about the boys who were taught to stitch at school so as to gain a skill that could help them gain employment? McBrin also writes about hyper-masculine men who stitch. There are examples of sailors stitching purely for pleasure, just like any middle-class Victorian woman. McBrin provides an image of a soldier with his wool set out in front of his frame as he embroiders. These men were far from home and time must have hung heavily upon them. Embroidery would have been the perfect remedy. McBrin notes that few museums or galleries hold examples of embroideries work by men and if they do come across them, they are seen as unique, which in itself is a sad reflection of societal thinking defining the interpretation of museum selection. McBrin brings to light a number of needle men and their engagement with needlework, men who come from almost every walk of life that one could think of. Yet as vast and diverse as the scholarship into this history of needlework is, men are almost entirely omitted. Their work has rarely been acknowledged or subjected to serious study, interpretation or even evaluation, which is why this book is so interesting. Here's a glimpse into an unknown world. For me at least, the jigsaw pieces are beginning to synthesise. Women's needlework is well known and well recorded in most instances. It symbolised a female ideal of oppression with investigations continuing, yet McBrin notes that needlework by men is rarely referenced, is elusive and fragmentary, and has gone largely unexamined, and I have to agree with him. 
needlework and gender has only recently been exposed to any serious critical examination, with McBrin writing that much has changed, with DIY and craftivist movements helping to gain a political voice, helping to break down centuries-old shame of men taking on feminine needlecrafts. This he cites using instances such as the BBC's Great British Sewing Bee, journalists who have taken up sewing classes in, uh, for further research purposes, the many men who oversee websites especially directed towards the male embroiderer, or numerous books written by men on the topics of sewing, knitting and other needle arts. And we all see images of men making and creating on all the social media platforms, especially during the pandemic. McBrin states that his book doesn't propose to map the progress of men's needlework, but seeks to extend feminist debates to interrogate the social practices of the culture of needlework in the construction of the masculine gender. And I believe he achieves his goal. He tries to shed light on how needlework operated in the making of modern masculinities to show a link between women's gains in gender equality and a corresponding crisis of men's masculinity, uh, masculinity where men turned to needlework before and after World War I, during World War II, during the Cold War, after the AIDS epidemic, before and after 9-11 and, I believe, during the COVID lockdowns. <clears throat> McBrin says himself that his book is neither an uncritical celebration of men's needlework nor a recuperation of its notable figures and histories. Rather, it offers, offers selective perspectives and insights into the social construction of the masculine through needlework as a paradynamic social practice. He wants this book to foster further debate for the young men and boys wanting to pick up a needle and thread because the persistent idea that sewing is seen as sissy still holds true today. McBrin writes about recent research suggesting that boys are engaging with the haptic pleasures, that is, the sense of touch and manipulation of objects using a sense of touch, in the form of gaming, putting forward a case for teaching boys needlework in schools, an idea I'm in total agreement with. There's a chapter entitled The Angel in the House, a reference to Virginia Woolf, who was committed to killing the Victorian feminine ideal through her writing. He offers interesting insights into Victorian education of young boys, orphans and children from the slums, with one example of a mid-19th century boy named Isaac Lomas, who stitched this on a sampler. When other boys play and car, then I sit down to needlework. If they did laugh, I did not shame, for laughing was just all their gain. McBrin also touches on women's suffrage. 
Henry James and his young Kateri of literature with potent images of the effeminate embroiderer, modelled on friends perhaps, but certainly pushing forward an image of the feminine or using uh, needlework as a cipher for the maternal. I want to read all the uh, books McBrin mentions and research all the names he so generously, generously offers. And he very cleverly alludes to the great secret where he writes, For these men and for many others like them, the mere hint of a homosexual secret was the beast lurking out of sight where no one thought to look in the sewing box. McBrin offers myriad references to needlework worked in into literature but also touches on some artists who took up the needle. People like Man Ray, Giacomo Bala who was well known in the futurist movement, Fortunato De Piro, Casimir Malevich, Jean Lucrat and Jean Arp. Many men engaged in needlework and activities saturated with feminine associations for so many reasons. Perhaps they were conscientious objectors, perhaps they were trying to recover from the physical and emotional horrors of war, or perhaps they simply enjoyed that calming link between working with the hand and the mind. Regardless of the male associations with a predominantly female pursuit, McBrin cites many instances where men exhibited their embroideries, including male members of the Bloomsbury Group, including aristocrats, veterans, captains of industry, politicians and artists. Their exhibitions included the Exhibition of Modern Embroideries and Decorative Art in 1924, the Modern Designs in Needlework in 1925, Exhibition of Modern British Embroidery held at the V&A Museum in 1932, the Exhibition of English Needlework Past and Present in 1934, the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society, the Exhibition of 20th Century Needlework in 1935 and a touring exhibition, Needlework and Embroidery in 1943. Now that's impressive information information that just begs further examination and it also begs the question where have all the other exhibitions of men's embroidery been noted there are a number of images in the book and i feel mcbrin has pulled back a heavy dark curtain i didn't even know existed he explores avenues I would never have normally thought about, offering analysis of needlework as a hobby, as a shield and as a nurturing, healing, protective cloak. Most of the men in this book just love to embroider. Some embroidered to pursue their art and some used it to portray their sexuality. Okay, I get all that and I think it's relevant to understand the history and place of men in embroidery. The whys and why nots of where we are now are firmly based in what's gone on before now. For me, the needlework created by men in the 1920s and 30s is a fascinating era and work in particular, that of Duncan Grant, is one that I want to pursue further. 
but hidden within is just a few lines from Brim is a worthy pertinent sentiment and that's the one about teaching young boys to sew that link between the hand and the mind is so very strong and to that end I just have to include a fabulous quote McBrin includes in his book from Ernest Thesiger written by Thesiger for needlework as a hobby in the home magazine of 1926. When the complete history of needlework comes to be written I suppose the first chapter will deal with the story of the couple who sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And it's worthy of notice that the gentleman in question did not say to his wife, Look here, Eve, this is a woman's job. Just you make me a nice little costume. But did his own plain sewing. And it is not on record that she thought any the worse of him for it. In later years, I suppose, Adam travelled eastwards and boasted of his prowess as a needleman, for in the east all the best work has been done by men. Eve presumably took her bodkin westwards with the result that in Europe it has always been considered that needlework was entirely a feminine business. Really, I think that says it all perfectly, far better than I ever could. Get yourself a copy of Joseph McBrin's book, Queering the Subversive Stitch, Men and the Culture of Needlework, written by Joseph McBrin, published by Bloomsbury in Great Britain in 2021. It's a fascinating read. As always, thank you so much for your time. I love having you here and it's truly appreciated. Tell your friends to tune in and subscribe and let's make 2023 the best year ever. Stitch Safari's now reached over 12,000 downloads and that's all thanks to you. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Wilp Magazine, listed as one of the top shows about embroidery by Repod in 2022 and recorded in the top five textile industry podcasts you must follow in 2023 by Feedspot. And I'm extremely grateful. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next exciting episode of Stitch Safari and our next inspiring adventure into stitch, embroidery and design. Bye for now.